This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to episode 24 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. There's just one week to go before Rosh Hashanah and the start of the year 5781. That's supposedly the day when God sits on his majestic throne, opens up a book telling him who's been naughty and who's been nice, and executing judgment on all of us for the coming year. Ridiculous, isn't it? But there's nothing ridiculous about the ten days that begin with Rosh Hashanah and end with Yom Kippur. And so the topic for this week and next is why we need to take the High Holy Days seriously. Let's face it, we're modern people. We're not like our grandparents and great-grandparents, and we're surely not like our even more distant ancestors. We're enlightened men and women. We may not know all the answers, but we know how to recognize fantasy when we see it, read it, or hear it. That's why we look at the Torah differently than they did. We appreciate the Torah for what we now understand it to be, a revolutionary document in its time, but only in its time. Being modern people, we can never see it the way our ancestors did. We know better. We know how way out of touch it is with today. Our ancestors, for example, believed that the Torah was the word of God as dictated to Moses. We, being modern people, only have to open the book to the very first chapter to realize how absurd that is. Maybe there were people called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but history doesn't report it, and archaeology doesn't confirm it, or so we keep being told by some biblical scholars and historians. We're supposed to believe that a little Semitic slave boy named Joseph grows up to be the number two man in an Egypt on the cusp of becoming a great empire. But we have the history of Egypt, and you know, Joseph is nowhere to be found. The story is a myth. So is the bit about Moses and the plagues and that whole Exodus thing. It makes for great movies, but there's nothing in Egypt's historical records about any of it. And of course, there's always creation. A creation, by the way, that tradition insists occurred on the first of Tishrei, meaning that next Shabbat is the anniversary of that event. As the Rosh Hashanah liturgy states, Hayom Harat Olam. Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of the world. Even if all the other problems we have with the Torah's tall tales disappeared tomorrow, we'd still have to contend with creation. Imagine believing that God created the universe and the planet Earth in six 24-hour days. Science has proven that to be nonsense. It took billions of years, not six days. It took a big bang, not a spoken word. It took the unleashing of matter and energy, atoms and ions, not some celestial being saying, let there be a tree and poof, there's the tree. There's no way we can take that seriously because we know that it didn't happen that way. And if we can't take that idea seriously, which starts the whole Torah, how can we take any other Torah seriously? Well, I'm going to make a bold statement here. The story of creation in Genesis 1 is virtually a perfect match for creation as the scientists see it. But you'll have to tune in to my October 16th podcast to find out why I said that. Why October 16th? 
because that week's Torah portion is the opening chapters of Genesis, of Breshit, which makes creation, as both the Torah and science agree it happened, the perfect topic. I've already given my listeners a clue in some of my previous podcasts. When the Torah says that God brought the universe into being by saying, let there be light, it was talking about the Big Bang. I'll give you another example now to hold you over until October 16th. The Torah tells us that in the early stages of creation, the waters gathered in one place and the dry land emerged. Science now tells us the same thing, but it wasn't until Sir Francis Bacon in the year 1620 that anyone suggested that this could actually be the case. It wasn't until 1912 that any scientist seriously even proposed this as a possibility, and that scientist was laughed at and derided by his colleagues for it for the rest of his life. And it wasn't until we started putting satellites into space in the 1960s that scientists began to realize that continental drift was not just a crazy theory, but something that really happened. The first chapter of Genesis was written at least 2,500 years before Sir Francis Bacon, nearly 3,000 years before the continental drift theory was formally presented and then proven by satellite photography. No one living back in the Torah's day could have come up with that on his own, but it's in there right at the beginning. Moving on, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't appear in the contemporary histories of their times means nothing because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have meant nothing to contemporary historians. Why should they have? To the contemporary historians of 4,000 years ago, a small group of wandering Arameans with funny ideas about one god was just not worth writing about. And yet, maybe the ancient historians did write about them, and we just didn't realize it. For example, precisely at the time that Jacob would have arrived in Egypt, according to the Torah's chronology, he went there to see his son Joseph. Archaeology tells us that the pharaoh of Egypt was a Semite named Jacob El. You heard that right. The pharaoh's name was Jacob El. The Torah tells us that our Jacob, our Jacob, lived in Egypt for 17 years, meaning that he died in his 18th year in Egypt. Archaeology tells us that history's Jacob, the pharaoh Yaakovel, died during his 18th year as Egypt's king. Are Jacob the patriarch and Yaakovel the pharaoh one and the same? Some prominent Egyptologists actually believe that they were, and not just because the names are the same. Listen to what the Torah tells us about our Jacob's funeral. Quote, it required 40 days to embalm Jacob, for such is the full period of embalming. The Egyptians bewailed him 70 days. Then Joseph went up to Canaan to bury his father, and with him went all the officials of Pharaoh, the senior members of his court, and all of Egypt's dignitaries. Chariots, too, and horsemen went with him. It was a very large troop, unquote. That's a description of how Egypt buried its kings not how Egypt buried the alien fathers of its vice-kings. There's no record of Moses or the plagues or the Exodus. Or is there? The sands of time are beginning to reveal their secrets about this period, too. There is, for example, a document called the Admonitions of Ippaware that nearly everyone agrees was written sometime around the reign of Ramesses II. 
It's an Egyptian document, not an Israelite one. It doesn't even mention Israel, but it does describe some of the plagues, including what appears to be the death of the firstborn in some form, and that slaves rebelled, and that the Pharaoh at the time dies by water in some way. The scholars, though, insist the document must have been a copy of an older document and has nothing to do with the events of the Exodus. Consider this, though. The most likely pharaoh of the Exodus wasn't Ramesses II, despite the movies, but his son, Merneptah, who ruled Egypt for 13 years. Ramesses had turned Egypt into the greatest power in the region, a mighty empire. History tells us that during the years that Merneptah ruled Egypt, he held on to most of his father's great successes. Egypt was still at its height during Merneptah's years on the throne. History also tells us, though, that when Merneptah died, Egypt is in a state of total collapse. Its mighty army is non-existent. A usurper grabs the throne from Merneptah's son, Seti II. Civil unrest is rampant throughout. Invaders from Lebanon seize the entire Nile Delta region. And Egypt's economy is in ruin, something that will take Egypt 75 years to turn around. History doesn't tell us why this sudden collapse of Egypt, a collapse from which it will never fully recover. The Torah, on the other hand, doesn't tell us what happened to Egypt after Israel left, but it does tell us what state Egypt was in after God got through with it, in a state of total collapse. Suddenly, the unverified, unverifiable history of Israel, as recounted in the Torah, begins to sound plausible. Suddenly, Actual history seems to peer through the heavy cloak of theological history. Suddenly, we who are modern and enlightened are confronted with the possibility of a new reality that's unsettling and uncomfortable. We're even more unsettled and uncomfortable when we read those portions of the Torah that prophesy Israel's future. Those portions tell us that if Israel fails to be true to God and his Torah, he'll throw the people Israel out of the land of Israel, scatter them among the nations, and never give them a moment's peace again until he's decided that they've had enough. The Torah's description in the two so-called blessings and curses sections of the trials Israel would have to endure are so brutal we have trouble reading the passages even today. Why do the Torah's prophecies bother us so much? After all, they're just words on parchment. They bother us because they're not just words on parchment. And we don't need archaeology to tell us that they're not. We know only too well how true those words turned out to be. We have 2,000 years of Jewish history that tells us that. And we've seen it with our own eyes because we've seen the horrors of the Holocaust, the Shoah. But we've also seen something else. At the end of the first blessings and curses section, the Torah records God as saying that the day would come when he believes we've had enough. Quote, And I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac, and I will remember my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Unquote. On May 14, 1943, according to a news report that day, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising came to an end, and the surviving Jews were shipped off to death camps. In the nearly one month during which that uprising occurred, 
Not one country raised a word of serious protest against the brutality of the German assault, just as no one had protested the transport of nearly 750,000 Jews from the ghetto to death camps in the months leading up to the uprising. There was a war on, true, but that didn't mean the West had to remain silent. Hitler, as one writer put it, quote, proclaimed their disregard as confirmation of his policy, unquote. In other words, he took the world's silence as the ultimate green light for the total implementation of the final solution of the Jewish question, the blueprint for the Holocaust, the Shoah. So May 14, 1943, not only marked the end of the Warsaw Ghetto, in Hitler's mind, it also marked the beginning of the end of the Jewish people. And I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac. And I will remember my covenant with Abraham, God said. And I will remember the land. Five years to the day after the ghetto's last battle. Five years to the day. On May 14, 1948, a blue and white flag was hoisted atop a Tel Aviv museum, while inside, a ceremony took place announcing that the state of Israel was born. After all those curses came to be, God kept his word. He remembered his covenant, and he remembered the land. And so if the history in the Torah is not the product of overactive imaginations, but is true history told from a theological perspective, and if these prophetic portions are known to be true, then it's logical to assume that the rest of the Torah must also be true. And what is the rest of the Torah? Law. What makes the Torah so unique a document is that the history it recounts doesn't exist by itself for itself. The history in the Torah makes no sense without the laws in the Torah, and the laws make no sense without the history. Debunk the history, and you debunk the laws. Prove the history, and you prove the laws. And that's what makes us so uncomfortable. That's what so unsettles us. Because so long as we can view the history of the Torah as the product of the human imagination, we can view the laws of the Torah the same way. Thus, we can pick and choose what laws we'll observe and what laws we'll ignore. That's not possible the other way around. But rest easy. The sands of the Near East will never yield up proof positive of the Torah's validity. No matter how much archaeologists dig up, they'll never dig up absolute proof of the words of the Torah, because that would defeat the purpose of belief. It's no big deal to believe in the existence of God if you know that God exists. It's meaningless to follow God's laws if you know that they are God's laws and that he wants you to follow them. Belief is a matter of faith, not fact. Even then, belief is invalid unless it's acted upon. It's not enough to say we believe. We have to demonstrate that belief day in and day out. That's what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are all about. They're the days set aside each year for us to choose between faith and fact, between what our modern enlightened minds tell us is true and what deep down we want to believe is true. If we don't believe, there's no reason for us to go through all of this breast-beating and soul-searching that the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to the end of Yom Kippur are all about. We can't sin against a God who doesn't exist. If we decide to believe, however, then we have to buy the whole package. 
we lose the option to pick and choose from it. If so, then, these 10 days that begin next Friday night are the days in which we must rededicate ourselves to fulfilling God's laws. And I don't mean the ritual laws. I'll talk more about that next week. I mean Torah laws that don't tolerate the continuation of poverty or social injustice of any kind. Laws that regulate how we love and how we hate. Laws that tell us how to do business and how not to do business. There are laws that demand that we control our passion for a progress that comes at the expense of our planet. Just look at the devastation going on right now in the Western United States to see how much we've sinned in that regard. These are laws that require us, as Israel, as Jews, as God's kingdom of priests, His holy nation, to show the world by the example of our lives how lives should be lived. As I said, I'll talk more about these laws in my podcast next Friday, the eve of Rosh Hashanah. Suffice it to say, though, that if we finally accept our role, and then if we do our job well enough, we'll help create a better world tomorrow for ourselves, for our children, for our children's children, and for everyone else's children on this planet, whether human, animal, or avian. A world that's just and righteous and honorable a veritable Garden of Eden. And Rosh Hashanah will truly be the birthday of the world because it finally will be the world God intended it to be. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.com O-R-G, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. And also, take a moment to remember the victims of 9-11. Today is the 19th anniversary of that horrible, horrible tragedy. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Stay safe. And may the year 5781 be a year of only blessings for us and for all of God's creation.